Blog Talk Radio. Control 
guys broadcasting live to billions of people. Camels on the streets tracking who we meet and call this liberty. Got introduced to the program. They came to an event. 
they shot the rifleman standards, and then uh, they said, you know what, I, I think that this is a way that I can become involved in helping the nation, in helping to do my share. And they became a part of the program. And now they are doing, uh, uh, they're doing their share. Uh, I don't know if it is all their share, but what I'm saying is they found a way to give back, to to help to try and pay the debt that we owe to those who have come before us. And the debt that we owe is to ensure that the nation that we hand off to those who come after us is in better shape than when we got it. It seems like folks uh, for the last uh, four or five decades have somehow lost, uh, they've gotten lost and they've forgotten or they're just refusing to accept that they have a responsibility for ensuring that the freedoms and liberties that that we have by virtue of being American citizens, of being of living in this nation, are not free, that they have to be maintained, that they have to be safeguarded, and they are delegating, either delegating their responsibilities or just completely shirking them. And, uh, and there are plenty of folks who were never told about this. They were never told that that they have an active part to play in governing this nation, they've never been told that, and that's one of the things that we're going to we're going to try and pass on the information for at an Appleseed Rifle Marksmanship event. If you'd like to attend an event, or if you'd like to know more, you can uh, do that by going to rwva.org, Romeo Whiskey Victor Alpha.org. That's our homepage. On the homepage, you'll find a great deal of information. Uh, if you want to talk to us, there's uh, links to contact us, either uh, with general questions nationally or if you've got some questions about uh, something locally, you can contact your state reps for Appleseed. Uh, there's facts pages, instructors pages. There's a mission statement page, why we do what we do. Uh, there's plenty of uh, uh, of information about Appleseed that uh, from – uh, radio interviews, television interviews, uh, newspaper interviews, stuff like that. And then if you want to find out where to attend an event, then you can look at those cursors across the top of the page. The second one from the left says Apple Seat. You put your cursor on that Apple Seat tab, you go to drop-down menu. On the drop-down menu, select Schedule. You click on that, and that will take you to a page that has a map of the United States on it. And then you can put your cursor on the state where you'd like to attend an event and click on that, and I'll give you a rundown of the uh, the events, what day they're on, where they're located, etc. Or if you want to look at all of the events across the United States, there's a hot link embedded in the text above the United States map. You click on that, and it will open a page that has the events that uh, are running all across the United States for this year. <clears throat> now listen... When you look at this page, I encourage you to be ready to click on the register link that's to the right of the events. <clears throat> I, I, I mention this every week, and the reason I do it is not to be, uh, not to parrot myself or to be a pest, but just to remind you that 
a lot of folks' lives have a have a big pile of uh, should have, could have, why didn't I, and stuff like that that they're dragging around behind them on a big fifty uh, foot long superhero cape, and uh, and it's weighing them down, it's slowing them down, and. Don't put this on top of there. Don't have that 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 burden have of I should have done this. I could have done that. Wish I would have done that when I had the time or the chance. Make this the thing that you actually do. All right. Set yourself a goal of attending a rifle, uh, apple seed rifle marksmanship event, and then attend the event and meet and exceed your goals of improving your rifle marksmanship. Once you do that, then uh, you'll be clearing out the path, clearing out the runway, the rocket launch pad. For the follow-on question, which is, what's next? What can I do next to continue to improve myself, my family, my home, my village, my community, my city, my state, and my nation? What can I do next to make myself a better person? And uh, and that will get you on the path to it. All right, you've got to start somewhere. You know, it's a cliche, the uh, the old Chinese proverb of the the greatest journey, the longest journey, starts with one step. And uh, even as cliche as it is, it's you got to admit that's still the truth. That's still the reality of it. If you want to make a change in your life, if you want to make a change in what you're doing, you've got to put one foot out in front of the other and take that first step. Well, this is a great first step. I've told you guys about about my life before Appleseed, which a great deal of it consisted of, uh, of banging on my TV, you know, hammering on top of the TV and uh, screaming at the the folks that were bringing me the bad news because I don't know what I didn't know what else to do. There was nothing else I could do because uh, I didn't have any way to do it. Uh, now I, I'm not saying that there's not ways out there. You can find ways to do them. You can find other things to get involved in. <clears throat> but for my particular situation, it was very difficult to do that. And the harder you make something to do, the less chance there is of you doing it. And apple seed was something I could do. I live out in the middle of nowhere. And uh, I don't see a lot of folks very often, but it just so happened that Appleseed was tailored for me because uh, I have land that I could build a designated Appleseed rifle marksmanship range on, and I did. I built a 25-meter range that can hold uh, about 90 folks. I built a actual distance range where you can shoot out to 700 meters. And uh, and now I'm in the process of continuing that by building additional ranges, and I've been building uh, some underground or below ground 360-degree shooting arenas for the commercial operation that also goes on here. This BattleRoadUSA.com, and uh, this worked as a way for me to get involved because I didn't have to go anywhere. Uh, to make this happen, although once I got started in Appleseed, I did. I did go out of the road quite a bit. Uh, I imagine I've gone to 25 or 35 other cities and 
represented Appleseed. They're doing uh, Appleseed Rifle Marksmanship two-day events. But I've done, uh, well, it's coming up close up to uh, 60 events here in at my home location here in Develop. I do one a month here, and uh, and this is a way to bring folks here so that I could give them the message here, and uh, it has really worked out well for me. And uh, and I really appreciate Appleseed giving me a chance to to start paying my fair share, to start helping to shoulder the burden of of taking on the responsibility of safeguarding our freedoms and liberties. Because I'll tell you guys, in America, that's the best way to say this. We have a we have a problem here. We think that that all of the rest of the world is like America. And we think that because we have enjoyed the freedom and liberties that we have for the uh the last two hundred years that that they can never disappear. They will always be here. Well listen, I'm telling you a lot of other folks talk the same thing. I'm sure you could talk to folks in uh, Germany in uh, nineteen thirty nine and say, Hey guys, do you think that uh, in a few short years that you will lose all of your freedoms and end up living in a dictatorship? And being responsible for uh, for a tremendous amount of damage and and the loss of all of your your freedoms and liberties, and they would say, absolutely not. Of course not. We're the most cultured uh, nation in Europe. If you went to Argentina and asked them if they thought that they would uh, lose their freedoms, if they would collapse into a dictatorship, they would say, absolutely not. If you went to the people in Serbia and Croatia and say, do you think that you guys, that your country would be embroiled in a uh, in a conflict that would cause it to become uh, a nation where there was no freedom, no liberty, there was just genocide and uh, a complete economic and social collapse? They would say, absolutely not. And yet the thing that all of those locations have in common is that that's exactly what happened. Exactly what happened. It can still happen just because you have some freedoms. Does not mean you will always have them. Just because uh, Americans enjoy the freedoms that they have today doesn't mean that they will still have them next week, next month, next year. Uh, It doesn't work that way. We have to be eternally vigilant. We have to make sure that that we're doing everything we can in order to safeguard these rights and these freedoms. Listen, I'll tell you, when we get folks uh, on the line from other nations, from China, Hungary, Yugoslavia, uh, Russia, Poland, uh, you name it, every, almost any other nation, because no other nation enjoys the freedoms and liberties that Americans do. When these folks from these other nations come and they're on the line, and now they're American citizens now, and I tell you what, they listen. They listen to what we're saying because guess what? They, to them, the loss of their rights and their freedoms is not an abstract notion. They've experienced it. 
they've lived in situations where they didn't have those rights and freedoms, and they take this very seriously. They take it very seriously because they have lived through it. A lot of their fellow citizens and their nations didn't live through it. Nothing says that if it happened here that you will live through it. So what's the best solution? Uh, do you go and you do you get yourself a bunker, or do you buy a bunch of guns that you can uh, you can uh, you can fight it out with uh, the government in your own personal bunker, or uh, or do you move to another nation? What what is the solution? Well, the solution is to ensure that it never happens. The solution is to shoulder your your share of the responsibility for ensuring that the rights and freedoms that you enjoy by virtue of being a citizen of this nation do not disappear, but they have to be retrieved or or rebuilt. Much easier to keep a thing than to find or rebuild a thing. That's the message we're trying to get out to you guys, that the founders who were tremendously brilliant, did not do the things they did. They did not fight a uh, a war of independence so that they could be happy. They fought a war to secure the freedom and liberties of a new nation so that those who came after them, their posterity, that they would be free, that they would enjoy the fruits of the labors of those who had come before them. The Appleseed Project is named the Appleseed Project because of the exact same philosophy. You've got Johnny Appleseed that went across the United States swinging out the, I say the United States, it wasn't the United States then. He went across, out across America swinging out the Appleseeds. <clears throat> and what he didn't do, well, he didn't sit there and and put the seeds in the ground lovingly and then uh, make sure that the seed has a nice, warm, rich soil to grow up in and and make sure it was watered and then uh, and make sure that as it grow as it grew he he took care of it and then because with his ultimate aim of being able to sit under that tree and enjoy the shade and then have the fruits falling from the tree into his lap so that he could take one and bite into it and relish the crunchiness of that apple and taste the the sweet fruit of the apple and, and the sweet apple juice running down his throat. He didn't do that. What he did was he took it out off across uh, America. He slung the seeds out. He had, a, he had a mission to do and he had a whole lot of work to do. He couldn't afford to stand still. He threw the seeds out. Some landed on fertile soil, and they took off and they started growing. Some landed on rocks or barren soil, and they they either died in place or they never started to grow, or they grew a little bit and then they died. And he did his best to get as many seeds planted as he could. But he wasn't doing it so that one day he would be sitting under the tree enjoying that fruit. He had too much work to do. He was doing it so that those who came after him would be able to enjoy the fruits of his labor. 
the apple tree is going to take uh, 10, 15 years to to reach maturity, 20 years to to reach maturity. He's he wasn't going to sit there. There's too much to do. He was putting the seeds out across the nation, putting the seeds out uh, in as many places as he could, so that the seeds that found fertile ground would grow. There's not much he could do about the other ones, and that's what we're doing. We're getting the message out there. And my message to uh, the folks in the program is you got to keep doing it. you got to keep getting the message out there, slinging it out there, even though you may not ever realize the fruits of your labor. That means you may not ever actually see some changes taking place. You may may not... Uh, you may not be graced with somebody coming to your event and and then jumping up and down and then and then going and uh, becoming a senator and enacting laws. You may not see that. I, I, I'm hoping that you will, but you may not. And you have to accept the fact that you're still going to do your job, whether you see that or not, whether you experience that or not, because your job isn't to uh, to relish the fruits of your labor. Your job it's to make sure the labor gets done, make sure the seeds get planted, make sure that the notion uh, of the citizens of America shouldering uh, their share of the responsibility of governing the nation, make sure that that message gets out there to them. Make sure that they understand that the responsibility for safeguarding the rights and freedoms of this nation is not one they can delegate. It's a non-delegatable responsibility. It's one that they have to ensure is done themselves. You can't give it to your brother or your sister or your your doctor or your lawyer or your and you certainly can't give it to your congressman or senator, right? I think we've I think we've been shown the uh the folly of that many times over. What you have to do is you'll have to take the responsibility yourself and make sure that you are vigilant, make sure that you're doing what needs to be done. Now, I know that uh, Appleseed has been criticized quite a few times for for not leading folks on further. And, you know, we're talking about different ways to do that, about about telling folks, okay, you want to get more involved, then here's what you do. You you go to Appleseed, you go to a shoot, you shoot the rifle with standards, you become an Appleseed instructor so that you can uh, continue to push the message on. At the same time, you embark on a course that will allow you to uh, to research and learn the information, and perhaps become members of other organizations, such as the Tenth Amendment organization. Uh, you become allies to support folks like uh, Sheriff Matt and his uh, 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 his organization of American Peace Officers, or you uh, become a a member of NRA, of TSRA, of any of the uh, Second Amendment organizations, any of the Tenth Amendment organizations, uh, we we don't handhold folks to that go in that direction because most of the time we feel like, look, you're a you're a grown man, grown woman, you're an American, and Americans don't need to be told what to do or how to do it. But at the same time, you know, maybe we maybe we need to start thinking about that. Maybe we need to start pointing toward folks toward possible directions where they can help and 
where they can uh, figure out a way to to get involved further. And that's something that we're thinking about doing. But uh, until we do, we're counting on you guys, on the American citizens. Once we've gotten you off the couch and we've told you that there's a problem, then we figure it's – there's two options after that. One, you can – you can refuse to believe that there's a problem. You can ignore it. You can you can put your head back in the sand. And you can uh get back on your couch and and go back to your thirty minute sitcoms or your uh sporting events or your races, etc. Or if you listen to the message and you hear what we say, then you can make a decision to shoulder your share of the responsibility. Now, once you do that, like I said, it's a very, it is a scary decision because if you decide that you're going to, that you're going to accept that you heard the warning, that you heard the message, then that means that you're accepting that you have to do something about it. And doing something about this, that's a hard thing. If you just say, okay, if you could just sign a paper or something and and say, okay, I've signed a paper saying, yes, that I have heard the message and that I, and that I support what you guys are doing. That's great. We love that. We want you to do that. We don't have a way to do that. But if that's all you do, then what? Then, then really what are you doing? And the answer is not much. You're going to have to figure out some way to get involved. And I tell folks uh, at Appleseed Events, you've got to figure out some way to get involved. We want you to start with Appleseed, but but it can't stop there. Appleseed isn't the answer to every single thing. It's just a it's a way to get started and a way to help you figure out the rest of the answers. <clears throat> so you're gonna have to get involved in other ways. You're going to have to uh, to start reading about what the government does. Now, don't get excited about this. You can, you don't have to get lost in the minutia of bills, but you can go to uh, usgovernment.org, any of the, hit the Google search. Uh, look for your senator's name and read, and just read the overview of what he does. Go to, uh, hit Google for uh, voting records. For your senator, find out how he's voting. What are you voting on? What are you saying yes to? What are you saying no to? Find out if that's really you, because he's supposed to be your representative, right? He's supposed to be representing you. So is he doing that? Is she doing that? Because if they're not, you got to tell them, hey, you're not doing what I asked you to do. And then you have to make a decision to, if they're not doing what you asked them to do, and you have to make a decision to get rid of them. And I don't mean threaten to get rid of them. I don't mean call them and say, hey, if you don't do what I'm asking you to do, I'm going to get rid of you. And then voting comes around and you go, hey, uh, you know, the, the the evil that I know is better than uh, than the other evil. Better that I have one, uh, I have to vote for the uh, this uh, letter so that I don't get this letter in there. That's uh, that's how they have you trapped already. That's how they have you trapped right now. They'll get there and tell you, hey, look, I know that I'm, uh, I'm, my record isn't clean. I know that 
basically I'm a criminal that just hasn't been caught yet, but better me than the guy with the other letter, right? Right? Well, the answer is no, that's not right. So what do you do? You, you, you get involved at a base level, and you start getting the guys that, that really should be representing you, start getting them into the system now. This isn't something we can fix in one day. Look, it took us uh, a couple of hundred years to get this messed up. It's going to take us a couple of years to get out of it. But don't expect, uh, don't expect any quick fix. Don't expect anything to work overnight and then get upset when it doesn't. This is a long haul, folks. But, but the end of this, either the victory or the defeat, is so important that there's no way you, you can't ignore it. You've got to get involved. I'm not saying you've got to quit your job and go out and campaign or that, uh, or that you've got to do what some guys in, in the Apathy Project did, which is basically uh, devote their whole life to it, where they end up uh, destroying their health or they lose their jobs or they go broke or they get divorced or whatever. Because they do, they are so passionate about it. We've got plenty of folks that have done that. What I'm saying is you've got to figure out how to do what amount you can do, and then you've got to do it. That's what I would like to get across to you. Figure out what amount you can do, and then do that amount. You'd be surprised how how much only uh, – 60 minutes a week can accomplish. 60 minutes a week. It can, if we could get uh, a large number of Americans who believe the way they believe, if we get to, could get them to do 60 minutes a week, we could change the face of this nation and ultimately, uh, we could ultimately uh, afford a complete sea change. 60 minutes a week. So find out what you can do, and then do the amount that you can do. And you don't have to start uh, right off the bat by by jumping in with both feet and going underwater. Although I, I don't think that's a bad way to do it either. You can uh, you can do five minutes this week, and ten minutes next week, and fifteen minutes the week after. Uh, by this week, by uh, looking at some of the things that I've been talking about. Look at the Tenth Amendment organization. Look at Sheriff Richard Mack and uh, the organization he's putting together. <clears throat> Look at any of the Second Amendment organizations, uh, Donors of America, National Rifle Association, your state rifle association, which is one of the things I recommend to you folks who are uh, uh, for a start for, your, for working on the Second Amendment, is making sure that your state rifle association, your state firearms uh, association, is a strong one. And the only way to get strong is by your support. Uh, these are the things that you can start on now.
Okay. Uh, we lost power, and that shut my phone down, so I'm calling back in. Uh, so, Coach, can you hear me now? I see your mic is open. Can you hear me? You're on there, Scout. Go right ahead. All righty. Thank you very much. <clears throat> and that's why uh, that's why I depend on my co-host because uh, he's here every every Thursday night, just like I am. He's devoting the same amount of time. He just doesn't get paid the same. Well, actually, he does get paid the same amount because we both make zero. Uh, <clears throat> so, thank you again co-host, and uh, I apologize, guys, for the interruption. <laughs> anyway, all right, so I've spent uh, enough time yelling about that, but I want you guys to understand that it's very, very important that that each and every one of us are, are pulling our weight, are doing our share. And the way to do that, you pick out something, you pick out something that that resonates in your heart, and you do that, okay? I'm not going to tell you that apple seed is the answer to everything, that it fixes everything, that it does everything. What I'm going to tell you is that it's an absolutely fantastic place to get started and and a great place to launch your continuing service to the nation from. All right. Uh, the... If there is, if anybody has any questions or anything like that, and once again, I'm with the power loss now. It severed my, uh, it severed my chat room, so I don't see the chat room because it hasn't, uh, it hasn't called it back up yet. But if you guys have something you want to say, you post it in there. I believe that uh, the co-host can can see it. And uh, if he does, then uh, he can write me a message or he can uh, whisper it in my ear here and uh, we'll get it answered. <clears throat> and uh, you guys are welcome to call in. We've got uh, we got plenty of lines open. You're welcome to call in to ask questions, to make comments, uh, to give thanks to one of your fellow crew members, any of that. We'll be glad to take your calls uh, at any time. I'm going to start talking about the – I'm going to pick up where I left off on the – the Burgoyne campaign and the Battle of Saratoga. But at any, if any time you guys uh, want to, uh, if you want to call in, you're welcome to do so. Three four seven three zero eight eight seven nine zero, and uh, and we'll get you. We'll get you on the air. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> okay. So for the last few weeks, we've been talking about the Burgoyne campaign, and uh, which eventually ended up in the Battle of Saratoga. And in reality, that was that was actually the end uh, of the beginning of the end of the war. Now, the war went on uh, for many years after that, but that was actually the point where the war was lost. So let me give you a quick uh, recap of what was going on because we talked about the the uh the Burgoyne campaign and basically what it was was uh in June of seventeen seventy seven uh, General John Burgoyne he he 
had established a plan, and he presented it uh, to the commanders, to his commanders, and to the king, and they approved it. And this was going to be an attempt to divide the United States, to divide the colonies. There was no United States at that time. It was it was a union of colonies. But with an attempt to divide the colonies by uh, moving south from the British province of Quebec to, get, to gain control of the Hudson River Valley. And this was going to be uh, uh, accomplished with in, in three separate attacks. And one was the uh, the push south from Quebec to gain control of the Hudson River Valley, uh, separating New England states from those of the south, and then a push from the west by St. Ledger and a uh, and an attack north up the Hudson River Valley by Howe. Uh, this would have split the colonies, would have separated the uh, the New England colonies from the southern colonies and pretty much isolated them. And then they figured once they were isolated and uh, once they were divided, then they could begin independently uh, to conquer the independent colonies, and that would put an end to this rebellion thing, all right? So on the, the attack from the north out of Quebec, after the early capture of Fort Ticonderoga, Burgoyne's campaign, it, you know, it, it had bogged down to a great amount of dif- difficulties. Uh, elements of the army had reached the Hudson as early as the end of July. But now this is after, remember we talked about the Battle of Lake Champlain. This was in the uh, uh, in the uh, the winter of 1776-77. How that had stopped the push south the year before because it had uh, Arnold and his forces had fought a battle, a uh, uh, a retreating battle, uh, to deny the British access to the Hudson Valley by stopping them uh, on Lake Champlain and running the the battles out to the beginning of the winter. Now, once it was winter, they couldn't they couldn't go anymore. So that gave them a they called us another year to prepare. Now, and then this picked up back in June of '77 with Burgoyne's uh, attack from the north again. Now, first Burgoyne uh, attacked Fort Ticonderoga, and they captured the fort rather easily because they they never even had to to fight much of a battle there because there was a higher piece of ground overlooking Ticonderoga called Mount Defiance. He moved his artillery uh, up to the top of Defiance. And I'm just thinking in my mind, you know, this has been done many times over the the last couple of hundred years, Ho Chi Minh did it uh, uh, on the French and uh, uh, and beat them. Uh, anyway, captured Ticonderoga. But after that, then he started having trouble because the uh, the the efforts began to get really bogged down. Anytime you have a supply line that stretches farther and further, then then you're going to have t- trouble getting supplies. And, uh, and like I told you uh, along over the last couple of weeks, there weren't there weren't a a vast number of roads that were uh, all-weather roads. Uh, there were only trails. And in many places, the Army had to make its own road by first cutting a pathway through the forest. And then uh, if the ground was swampy, they would have to cut 
trees that they could lay side by side to this day could, uh, like building a, a log road out of trees so that they could go over it. At the same time they're doing this, the, the roads that were in place, many of the colonists were chopping down trees to cover pathways that were already in existence. So you'd have a, a road that you could use. However, all the trees along it have been chopped down, so now they were laying in the road. So the uh, the forces were getting bogged down. Now he fought a battle at uh, uh, he fought a battle uh, all along the way, and he had had Indians with him. But remember, we talked about the battle of uh, uh, Fort Stanwix a couple of weeks ago. Well, Stanwicks, uh, St. Ledger's forces had been routed, and his Indian allies had been split off. Once they were split off, Burgoyne's Indian allies also began became split off. And remember, we talked about uh, the Jenny McCray story, where Burgoyne had uh, he had enlisted the aid of the Indians to attack, uh, supposedly just uh, according to him just the uh, the rebel army, and of course they just took it as a uh, carte blanche to attack and kill everyone, including the Tories, including the uh, the British allies. And uh, this eventually causes the Burgoyne's Indians, the troubles eventually causes Burgoyne's Indians to leave him. Now, once the Indians have left him, then he, he doesn't have a, a, a good source of information, of intelligence, that he was getting from his Indian scouts. So so he, now he's moving uh, a lot more slowly. He's beginning to be uh, engaged at different times by the uh, by the militia and by independent uh, groups of colonists. <clears throat> well, Saratoga wasn't just one battle, right? It was uh, a a group of three battles. Now, the first battle was the uh, the first battle of Freeman's Farm. I mean, we talked about this, remember? It was uh, 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 on the 18th of September, once, uh, once Burgoyne's army, or at least the vanguard of his army, had reached a position just north of Saratoga, which was about four miles from the American defensive line. They had been set up there, and uh, the reason they chose Freeman's Farm was because it occupied a clearing. I'm sure that Freeman himself has laboriously hacked out over the last uh, couple of decades. Anyway, there was a large clearing there. So that's where the uh, colonists had set up. And the skirmishes started occurring there between the American scouting parties and the leading elements of the Coins Army. Now, the American uh, army had become, or the American camp there had had become a bed of festering intrigue ever since Arnold's return from Fort Stanwix. And this is this is just like men of passion and and oh my gosh, we see this all the time. We see the how political intrigue and, and infighting can destroy a group. Well when Gates and Arnold had, had and it had been on fairly decent terms, you know, despite the fact that they were both pretty egomaniacal. But Arnold 
managed to turn Gates, General Gates, against uh, him by taking on staff officers who were friendly to Schuler, who is the general that, that Gates was in a conflict with. <clears throat> and this became, uh, this caused an ongoing feud between the two, all right? So the Americans, or the, uh, the colonists, ended up fighting the first battle of Freeman's Farm that we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. <clears throat> and then uh, at, the, at the battle, uh, this is one of the places where rifle marksmanship in history uh, proved to be a very important uh, aspect of the combat then. We know that Daniel Morgan had a, uh, a unit called Morgan's Riflemen. <clears throat> and these men were all armed with the, uh, the latest Pennsylvania rifles, which means they had uh, that their firearms actually had rifle, rifling in the barrels, which imparted a spin to the bullet to help stabilize it and improve the accuracy. Most of the colonial forces and the British had smooth bores. Which when you fired a round, there was no spit on it, so there wasn't anything to stabilize the round. It could it could drift one way or the other, and there was no real uh, there were no real inherent accuracy. Now I'm not saying you couldn't hit stuff with it if you trained with it. You could same way that you can hit stuff with a slingshot and stuff like that. But <clears throat> the difference is is that Morgan's men could uh, could consistently make headshots on their enemy at 250 yards, all right? So during the Battle of Morgan's men took very careful aim. They picked off virtually every single officer in the advancing companies and charged. Remember I told you that they charged this unit unaware that uh, even though they were destroying this unit, they were charging directly into the path where uh, where the the oncoming British unit was going to be charging into their flank because the the, the oncoming British uh, regular unit was coming out of the woods at a different angle. All right, so this fighting raged back and forth. Now, the first battle of Freeman's Farm was a tactical victory to for the the British regulars. All right, so the and the reason it was called that is because <clears throat> the regulars retained the field of battle. Okay, which is, that doesn't mean that much other than they, they stayed there. Now, they lost twice the number of men that the uh, the American military lost. The American military lost about 300. The regulars lost around 600 men. <clears throat> and, uh, and there was really no tactical gain. Yes, the regulars maintained control of the field, but it didn't get them anywhere. All right? <clears throat> So, Burgoyne's council that evening, uh, they were trying to figure out whether or not to attack the next day. And they finally reached a decision that to delay further action at least one day until the 21st of September. The Army, instead, they moved to consolidate their positions and, and kind of bring them up closer to the American line. While they also collected and, uh, and stockpiled their dead, I'm sure that they buried them and tried to get their wounded, etc., now, the attack on the 21st was called off when Burgoyne received a letter, which was dated September, 20, September 12th, from Henry Clinton, who was commanding the British garrison in New York City. Now, remember, Burgoyne, this was a three 
uh, three-part attack. Burgoyne's forces attacking from the north down uh, into the Hudson River Valley, St. Ledger attacking from the west, and Howe attacking from the south. And we know that the uh, the first prong, St. Ledger's men, were routed. He was sent scampering back. And uh, so his his section, the, his prong of the three-prong attack, was defeated. And he had to, he had to go back. He had no more, he had lost too many men, too many supplies, lost all of his Indians. So he left. The throng from the south, house forces, decided to divert and attack Pennsylvania. Hal left Clinton in charge of the garrison there in New York. And Clinton was going to uh, bring the troops from New York, the New York garrison, and attack north in order to assist Burgoyne. All right? All right, so that's where we are now. Now, Burgoyne receives the letter from Henry Clinton, who is uh, commanding the garrison in New York, uh, and Clinton suggested that he could make a push at Fort Montgomery in about 10 days. And Montgomery was an American post on the Hudson River in uh, the New York Highlands, just just south of West Point. But it uh, And if Clinton left New York on, uh, on say, the 22nd, uh, about 10 days after he wrote the letter, he still couldn't hope to arrive in the vicinity of Saratoga before the end of the month. That means that Burgoyne was going to be on his own. Now remember, Burgoyne, his lines are stretching all the way up to Quebec, his resupply lines, which means he isn't getting any more. He'd already shut himself off after uh, uh, after the troubles he had had after Ticonderoga. He closed the resupply forts. He had uh, he had taken those men out of the loop, so he wasn't going to get more supplies. Now Burgoyne is running low on men and food, and, he, and he's still in a very bad position. But he decided to wait in the hope that Clinton would arrive to save his army. Now there's been a lot of speculation about the fact that <clears throat> that he thought that Howe or that Clinton was going to come and save him, and the and both of them have said that they never said that they were. But you would have to think that that Burgoyne must have believed this or he wouldn't have waited. He wouldn't have waited there because every day he waited put him in a more perilous position. All right, Burgoyne wrote to Clinton then again on the 23rd. This is two days after he got the letter from Clinton. And he was requesting any kind of assistance or diversion to draw Gates' army away from him. Now, Clinton sailed from New York on October 3rd, and he captured, he did capture Forts Montgomery and Clinton on October 6th. The furthest north that any of his troops ever went was Claremont, where they raided the estate of the prominent patriot, the Livingston family, on October 16th. Now, unknown to either side at Saratoga, Lincoln, and General Lincoln and uh, Colonel John Brown uh, of the Colonials had staged an attack against the British position at Fort Ticonderoga. Lincoln had gathered together almost 2,000 men uh, near Bennington uh, by the by the the early part of September. And then Brown had a detachment of 500 men. Uh, they attacked and captured all of the uh, the poorly defended positions between Ticonderoga and Lake George. And remember that uh, what I said earlier: Burgoyne had shut down. As he as he attacked south, 
he began garrisoning posts behind him, and he left him there. And that would keep his resupply line open, and if need be, a line of retreat. But once he started having difficulty, he started shutting them down and, and taking the men from them. Because you know, when I told you earlier about the when you have a, a battle like the first Battle of Freeman's Farm, if you lose the the colonists lost 300 men, and the regulars lost 600. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> even if that were reversed, even if the colonists had lost 600, the British regulars had lost 300, that is still not a good situation. And here's why, because the the colonists could fairly easily replace those men if needed, while the British regulars could not. It was a long, long way from getting any men to replace the ones that he had lost. And he didn't just lose 300, he lost 600 men. Uh, all right, so Brown and a group of 500 men, they attacked those positions between Ticonderoga and Lake George, and then they spent uh, several days uh, bombarding the fort at Ticonderoga, and that didn't do a whole lot of good. Uh, and these men, uh, Brown's men, and also some of the prisoners that they freed along the way, because when they attacked these garrisons, the garrisons were usually holding prisoners that had been captured by the British regulars. Anyway, when they attacked these poorly defended garrisons, they would uh, they would free the colonial prisoners here. All right, so so then Brown's troops and all the folks that he had uh, freed along the way. They ended up uh, they ended up making their way to the American camps <clears throat> at uh, Bemis Heights by around the 29th of September. All right. <clears throat> now here we are now in uh, in the American camp and the the trouble between General Horatio Gates and uh, General Arnold finally exploded into open hostility between the two. Now, we have the first battle of uh, Freeman's Farm, and Gates very quickly wrote uh, letters back to Congress about the actions of September 19th to to Congress and to uh, uh, Governor George Clinton of New York. But he failed to mention Arnold at all. He was so angry with him, and, and the feud between them had gotten so big. He failed to mention Arnold at all. And Arnold... If you read the report to the battle, Arnold was the one who actually uh, who actually did a great deal of the fighting. Arnold was out there at the head of his men, leading his men into battle at the head of them, while Gates was back in his tent uh, receiving reports of the battle, but uh, not really not really involved in it. All right, and Arnold, of course, was a a tremendously masterful uh, tactician and a combat effective commander. And a great deal, uh, if not the majority, of the victory that was, I'd say a victory, it wasn't a victory, it was, but but it did go well because, as I said, they, they killed 600 as opposed to having 300 of theirs killed. And while it was a tactical victory for the British regulars because they retained the field, it didn't get them anything. All right, so the the credits for that day, a great deal of them should have gone to Arnold. Well, Gates didn't even mention his name. 
Arnold got upset, and the 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 argument got to such a level that it turned into a huge shouting match between Gates and Arnold. And Gates ended up relieving Arnold of his command and giving it to uh, General Benjamin Lincoln. Now, Arnold asked for a transfer to Washington's command, which Gates, uh, Gates granted it. But instead of leaving, Arnold went to his tent and uh, and stayed there. And uh, and now supposedly he's saying that there was uh, there was a petition signed by all of the line officers and delivered to Arnold saying, "Hey, you got to stay here with us. You have to stay with us. But we can't. Nobody's. It's just a uh, an oral." anecdotal history. Nobody, uh, there's no documentation to prove it. <clears throat> anyway, during this time, between the, the the 19th or so and the second Battle of uh, Bemis Heights, which, uh, I mean, uh, the second Battle of Saratoga, which is the Battle of Bemis Heights, which began on October 7th, there were almost daily clashes between the pickets and patrols of the two armies. Morgan's sharpshooters that we talked about earlier were familiar with the strategy and tactics of woodland warfare, and they were uh, they were constantly harassing and uh, and attacking and firing on the British patrols on their western flank. Now, as September passed into October, it became clear that Clinton was not coming to help Burgoyne, and Burgoyne. Put the his army, put the British regulars on short rations on October third, and uh, <clears throat> I know that I read what that was, but uh, suffice to say that even on full rations they weren't getting enough food. Now they're on short rations, which is uh, it's like uh, half or less. It might be uh, a half a cup of flour, uh, an ounce of meat if you've got any meat, and that was usually raw. And uh, and and usually that was close to it. All right. So on October fourth, Burgoyne called a war council in which uh, several options open to him or closed off to him were discussed. But but they didn't. They never reached any conclusive decision about what they were going to do. There was a lot of indecision. Now when the council resumed October fifth, Rietzel, General Rietzel proposed a retreat. And he was supported by Frazier in this, but General Burgoyne refused to consider the retreat, insisting that a retreat would be disgraceful. And you have to remember that a lot of times these commanders were doing things not because it would be the best thing for their army, right? Because a lot of the commanders then considered that having their army slaughtered and them surrendering to a victorious enemy held more honor than for them to take a uh, strategic uh, retreat, which, you know, I'm, I'm sure that his men didn't agree with that, but that's the way a lot of things were done back then. <clears throat> now, they finally agreed on assaulting the American left flank with 2,000 men, which was was actually more than one-third of the army, on the 7th of October. Now, what he didn't realize is that the army he was attacking 
had been steadily growing in the interval between the uh, Freeman's Farm and the Bemis Heights battle. <clears throat> in, a re- in addition to the return of Lincoln's detachment, remember that's the uh, the 2,000 men earlier, and uh, and Brown's group of 500, the uh, there had been militiamen uh, from the different uh, states pouring in, volunteers, plenty of supplies and uh, uh, ammunition, food, etc., which is a good thing because they had, they had used most of their ammunition in the first battle. If Burgoyne had decided to immediately attack again after that, he, there's a good chance he could have busted out of this problem, but he didn't. And when he didn't, the supplies started to pour in and the men started to pour in. So on October 7th, uh, instead of facing the the smaller army, which was not much larger than his, of about 6,000, now he was facing uh, an army that uh, was more than 12,000 men strong. And, and it was led by a man who knew how much trouble Burgoyne was in. Gates had been getting a, a consistent flow of intelligence from the, the stream of deserters leaving the British lines. It also intercepted Clinton's response to Burgoyne's plea for help. I'm going to read that to you uh, out of the, uh, the 1776, 17, the Spirit of 1777 book in just a second. Spirit of 1776, I mean, because <clears throat> I thought it was a, an interesting story. All right. So, so Burgoyne has put himself in a horrible position. All right. So October 7th, they begin, they decide to attack. Now, while Borgoyne's troop strength was nominally higher uh, at the time he attacked, he had about 5,000 effective battle-ready troops on the 7th uh, because of the losses from the the uh, earlier battles and the desertions, which were, were picking up speed, they had reduced his forces. General Rietzel advised the Army that the retreat, but Burgoyne decided to reconnoiter the American left flank to see if an attack was possible. Uh, so Burgoyne took Frazier's advance corps along with the light troops of the 24th uh, foot infantry on the right and the combined British grenadiers on the left and a force drawn from all of the German regiments in the army in the Senate. Now there were eight British cannon under Major Williams and 12 uh, Hessian cannon under Captain Pausch. They left their camp about uh, oh, 10 or 11 in the morning, and they advanced about three-quarters of a mile to uh, Barber's Wheat Field. And uh, uh, Barber was a, a name of the, the local landowner. <clears throat> the Wheat Field was on a rise uh, above Mill Brook, where they, the, uh, the advancing British Army, the army that was going to uh, the recon- uh, reconnaissance force, where well, they stopped to observe the American positions. Now, while the field afforded some room for artillery to work, the flanks were were dangerously close to the surrounding woods. Now, what that means is you have you have the field, which is kind of open, so you can you can make some cannon shots and you can maneuver your men in there. However, the once your men are set up in the line of battle, each of the edges are awfully dang close to the woods, and we know what happens in the woods, right? You've got uh, you've got the Morgan's riflemen and 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 everybody else there, 
<laughs> All right. Uh, all right, so Gates, remember he had, he dumped Arnold. Now, Arnold, like I said, Arnold wasn't gone. He was over in his tent sulking. But Gates had assumed the command of the American left, and he gave the command of the right to General Lincoln. Now, when the American scouts brought news to uh, Gates of Burgoyne's movements, he ordered Morgan's riflemen out to the far left uh, of the the uh, British position. Uh, with Poor's men, this is the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd New Hampshire's on the left, uh, along with the 2nd and 4th New York regiments on the right, and uh, uh, Learned's 1st New York, the 1st Canadian, the 2nd, 8th, and 9th Massachusetts regiments, plus uh, a, uh, a large selection of militia companies. These were in the center of his force. Now, there was a force of about 1,200 New York militia under Brigadier General Abraham Ten Brock. This was held in reserve behind Learned's Line, okay? So you've got the uh, the 1st New York, 1st Canadian, the 2nd, 8th, and 9th Massachusetts regiments, plus a large militia contingent there in the center. And then behind those guys, you've got another group of 1,200 New York militia under uh, General Brock. In all, more than 8,000 Americans were on the field that day, including about uh, 1,400 men from Lincoln's command. They were deployed when the action became became really fierce. All right, and these are this is against uh, Burgoyne's troops' strength, which was 5,000. Uh, the beginning of the battle came between 2 and 2:30 p.m. Uh, the first fire from the British generals. I mean, from the British uh, uh, grenadier companies. Poor's men held their fire, and the terrain made the the fire of the British regulars really pretty much ineffective. <clears throat> now, when Major Ackland, uh, there in the center of the British forces, he led the British grenadiers in a bayonet charge, and the Americans finally began shooting at close range. Ackland was shot down immediately. He was shot in both his legs, and many of the grenadiers also went down there. Their column was in a total rout, and Poor's men uh, uh, advanced to take Ackland and Williams prisoner and captured the uh, uh, the British regular artillery. <clears throat> uh, this is on the the British right. All right, Poor's men were on the right. On the American left, things were not uh, going too well for the British uh, over there either. Morgan's men swept aside the Canadians and the Indians to engage Fraser's regulars. Now, though slightly outnumbered, Morgan's men managed to break up several of their British attempts to move west uh, around his plane. When General Fraser was mortally wounded in this phase of the battle, and uh, for those of you, uh, most of you folks should be uh, familiar with uh, with this phase uh, or with this story because uh, it's one that uh, that we talk about quite often, which is the the ability of uh, of a rifleman to affect 
uh, a battle. Okay? So what happened was, uh, right in the middle of this battle, uh, as they're fighting, uh, and Morgan's men are are uh, shooting, <clears throat> they could see, <clears throat> I'm sorry, <clears throat> I'm going to have to take a sip of water here. <clears throat> okay, that was, that was cold coffee. Uh, as Morgan's men and uh, and the rest of the uh, colonial forces were putting the hammer down on uh, on the British regulars, <clears throat> one of the things that was happening was uh, General Fraser was rallying his men, and he was doing a great job of it. <clears throat> and uh, Benedict uh, Arlo rode up to Morgan. He pointed over at Fraser, and he told Morgan, "He goes, look, we got to get rid of that guy. That guy is that that man right there is worth a whole regiment because of what he's doing. Instead of uh, allowing the his troops to to leave by presenting such a uh, uh, by being a model of bravery." And rallying his men, he was preventing the the victory that uh, it, it was going to come, but it was making it much harder. <clears throat> so Arnold said, told Morgan, he goes, we got to get rid of him. we got to get rid of that guy right there. Morgan called up one of his men, uh, uh, a, uh, <clears throat> a soldier named Timothy Murphy, all right? So when you guys hear about Timothy Murphy... This is where he became known from. Morgan called up Timothy Murphy, who was known as an excellent shot. He said, that gallant officer is General Fraser. I admire him, but it is necessary that he should die. Do your duty. Now, at many – this wasn't uh, – this wasn't something that that was always looked on as uh, as a uh, I guess as a noble thing, all right? Because uh, the the idea of nobility was uh, more of a hand to hand, uh, you know, ten paces from each other shooting, or at uh, one pace uh, crossing swords or bayonets. The idea of shooting somebody from uh, 250 to 300 yards was not uh, considered by a lot of people to be the best thing. Now, I'm not talking about shooting at uh, at an oncom- oncoming column of troops. You know, that's that was good. But I'm talking about picking at one person and shooting them. A lot of folks at the time didn't consider that uh, sporting, I guess. And that's one of the reasons that... Uh, it, that uh, General Morgan told Murphy that. He said, do your duty. doesn't matter how you feel about this. It matters what happens in this battle. So do your duty. So Murphy climbed a tree, and uh, he took careful aim at, uh, at a distance of approximately 300 yards and fired four times. Now, 
he also had a very uh, unique rifle. It was a double-barreled rifle, and he fired four times. The first shot was a close miss, uh, and I'm sure that he he could see where the round hit, and he used that data to adjust. That's called a rifleman's dance, right? You fire a round, you observe the impact, and then you adjust your aiming point using the data that you got from the uh, observed first round, the miss. The second round raised the general's horse, and with the third round, Fraser tumbled from his horse, shot through and through the stomach. Now, General Fraser died that night, and uh, <clears throat> and that was it was an extremely important part of winning that battle was for them to lose the man that they were all rallying behind. Once they had no one to rally behind, it it let the air out of their uh, uh, out of their defense and helped to ensure the victory of the. Uh, colonial forces. Now, that wasn't the only shot he made, all right, because a fourth shot, <clears throat> General Burgoyne's uh, chief aide-de-camp had galloped onto the field with a message. As he's riding up to uh, uh, Fraser, Murphy's fourth shot hit him and killed him instantly. That is one of the many Examples of of how rifle one man and one rifle can change the outcome of a whole battle, and depending on the battle, can change the outcome of a war. <clears throat> All right, the felling of Fraser, and with the arrival of uh, General Brock's large militia brigade, which pretty much equaled the entire British reconnaissance force in its size. It broke the British will. And they began a disorganized retreat toward their entrenchments. Now, Burgoyne was also very nearly killed by one of Morgan's marksmen. Uh, three shots almost hit him. One hit his horse, one hit his hat, and one hit his waistcoat. This is from uh, from the extreme ranges of uh, of 300-plus yards away. Now, the first phase of this battle lasted about an hour and cost Burgoyne a little over 400 men, including the capture of most of the Grenadiers' command and six of the 10 field pieces that they had uh, brought into the battle. Okay? Uh, At this point, there's another change in the battle because they got an unexpected, some unexpected help. General Arnold, who was, uh, remember he was sulking in his tent. He'd been relieved of his command last we heard from him. And uh, it's, I don't know that there's any concrete evidence, uh, evidence of it, but it, uh, from all reports that, uh, that he'd been in his tent drinking while he was sulking. <clears throat> anyway, uh, he got on his horse, and he rode out to join the action. Now, General Gates immediately sent uh, Major Armstrong after Benedict Arnold with orders for Arnold to return. But, Arnold, but Armstrong didn't catch up with Arnold until Arnold had already uh, joined the forces, rallied them, and led the attack. 
uh, what he did was uh, the defenses on the right side of the British camp were anchored with with two large redoubts. That's like a like a you know a circular square fortified position, right? And the outermost one was defended by about 300 men under the command of one of the Hessian uh, commanders. The other was under the command of Lord Balcaris. Now there was a small contingent of Canadians that occupied the ground between the two fortifications. And most of the retreating force, these are the folks that had just gotten routed, uh, were headed for a Balkari's position. And Raymond's position, slightly north and further away from the action, uh, Arnold, as I told you before, he jumped on his horse, he rode out to the battle, ran up to the front of the lines and said, let's go. And he was leading the American chase. And he led Poor's men in an attack on the Balcaris redoubt. Now, Balcaris had set up his defenses really well, and the redoubt was held. The action was so fierce that Burgoyne afterwards wrote, this is a quote by him, uh, a more determined perseverance than they showed is not in any officer's experience. Now, seeing that the advance had been checked and that Leonard was preparing to attack the Raymond redoubt, Arnold Moore moved toward that action, recklessly riding between the lines and remarkably emerging unhurt. It kind of reminds me of the the ride that uh, uh, oh, what's his name did in uh, the uh, the Indian movie. Uh, I can't think of his name. Anyway, so he was. Uh, I'm sure he was fit to be tied. He rode directly between the two lines, which were in close proximity. He emerged unhurt while they were while they were shooting at them, and he led the charge of Leonard's men through the gap between the two redoubts. Remember, he was there. The Canadian forces were defending that area, and once his men had uh, crossed through the forces that were between the two, that put him in the rear of Raymond's position. And Morgan's men, at the same time, had circled around from the far side. In a furious battle, the redoubt was taken by Morgan and uh, and Poor's men, led by Arnold. And uh, uh, Raymond was killed. Arnold's horse uh, was hit in one of the final volleys, and Arnold's leg was broken uh, by both being shot into and by the falling horse. <laughs> and at this point... That the Armstrong, remember Armstrong was sent by Gates to, to bring him back. Armstrong finally caught out to him. He said, hey, you got to come back now. And, and, of course, he'd been shot and busted up by then. <clears throat> All right, the capture of Raymond's redoubt exposed the British camp. They had, once a redoubt and the center lines manned by Canadians had been taken, now the whole camp is uh, in peril. The only thing that saved them is darkness had been setting in. And uh, now some of the Hessians, some of the German troops, tried to retake the redoubt, but they ended up being captured as, as soon as darkness fell. And uh, and that's how it ended that evening. Now, Burgoyne had lost over a 1,000 men in these two battles, and this left him 
outnumbered roughly three to one. American losses came to about 500 killed and wounded. Burgoyne had lost several of his most effective generals and uh, colonels, his commanders, his line commanders. His attempts to attack and capture the American position had failed. His forward line was now breached, and that night he lit fires on all the remaining forward positions and withdrew under the cover of darkness. And this is something that we've seen over and over, right? We've seen both sides doing this. Remember, uh, Washington had done this effectively several times. Uh, on the morning of, the top of October 8th, he had withdrawn all the way back to the fortified positions that he held on the September 16th. But at 13th, uh, he had retreated all the way to Saratoga. And finally, on the 17th, he surrendered his army. The remnants of the expedition, the, the folks that the folks that weren't actually surrendered on the 17th uh, re- eventually retreated all the way from Tycho and Ticonderoga back to Quebec. So once Burgoyne had surrendered, the news of this ended up getting, getting to France. This directly caused the uh, the the uh, decision of the French to enter into negotiations with the Americans that resulted in the formal Franco-American alliance and French entry into the war. This moved the conflict onto a global stage. Remember, the the British and the French had been fighting forever. They just ended up uh, fighting a a battle, the French and Indian War, not quite uh, uh, 20 years before. And the French and the British were were close to equals in numbers and ships and troops. I'm not going to say that they were, being, they were close to equal in their military prowess, but no, no actions between the British and French were, were ever quick. It was always a long war, and that was just between the the British and the French. Now, you have the French entered in, and this actually became one of the first world wars in the world's history. This is one of the first wars uh, between between uh, two enemies that was fought on a, on the, a majority of the continents of the world. <clears throat> All right. Uh, as a consequence of the French entering, Britain was forced to divert resources used to fight the war in North America to theaters in the West Indies, into Europe, into the Africa, into their islands in the uh, in the Caribbeans, <clears throat> and uh, to rely on what turned out to be the uh, <laughs> a fatal idea that loyalist uh, support in its North American operations would fill the, the gap, because they never did. So Burgoyne's failed campaign uh, marked the major turning point in the war. <clears throat> uh, 
recognition of his contribution to the battles at Saratoga, Arnold had his seniority restored. Now, he, you know, he lost it after being passed over promotions early in 1777. You know, he's, he had, some folks had been promoted past him, which made them senior to him. Now, the leg wound that he received there, because remember, he'd been shot through the leg and had broken it when the uh, when the, the horse had fallen on him, <clears throat> kept him in bed for five months. And uh, this began while he was in bedridden and then while he was still, uh, while he was getting better uh, in kind of like, uh, I guess what you'd call a rehabilitation phase of it. He was still on set for field service, but he was serving as a military governor of Philadelphia. This is where Arnold began his treasonous correspondence with the British during this time period. He was supposedly, he was so upset over the way he'd been treated first by his uh, Passover for uh, promotions, and then by his treatment by Gates at uh, the battles of Saratoga that that supposedly this had pushed him into becoming a traitor. And uh, we know from the history books that although Arnold was probably one of the best, if not the best, military general that the colonists had, you look back in history now, that doesn't matter because the only thing that matters is what he did. His act of treason, which, uh, you know, coined, his name became synonymous with treason, you know. If you have a Benedict Arnold in your company, then uh, you know that that is a traitor. Uh, so, that is the the overview of uh the battle of the battle of Saratoga. So what I'd like to do now is uh I'd like to read you some of the some of the uh, uh the letters. You know, I've told you many times before that that uh the book that I enjoy reading to you guys from is uh, called the Spirit of Seventy Six, and uh, this is by Castle Books, and you can you can get a copy of it on Amazon or eBay, anything like that. And I, and I I really like it because, like I said, <clears throat> you can read uh, books of history written by anybody. Even uh, if you read Doctor Fisher's book, <clears throat> he didn't. Uh, uh, he didn't go back in time and witness the events that he wrote about. He had to read the uh, the written history that was left, the letters from Paul Revere, the letters and the, the accounts, the diaries, the journals of all the folks that were there. And then he summed that up and wrote his story, which is great. But if you want to find out what was really happening and how these guys got their information, then you got to read the letters that they read to write the books, right? Because that's what they did. That's how they ended up writing the books. They got the uh, the letters and the diaries, and they they distilled those down into books of history. And uh, these are the uh, the words of the uh, of the folks who were there. All right. 
uh, I'm going to take a quick uh, a quick like a two minute break, and then I'll be right back. I've got to uh, got to do something with the the power again to keep us from losing uh, power again. I'm going to play uh, uh, some of our uh, theme music, and then. Uh, and I'll be right back, all right? Okay, hold on just a minute. We'll be right back. Interruption. I need to make sure that that uh, we didn't lose power again. We even, we're down in the middle of nowhere, and we're on a electrical cooperative. And uh, uh, you know, there's hundreds of miles of cables running through the the woods and everything else. And on a windy night, you quite often get uh, interruptions of power. It's very regular to have interruptions of power out here. And 
And uh, I need to make sure that uh, if we lost power again, I'll at least have the phone. So <clears throat> thanks. I'm sure you guys know that uh, there's uh, – I'm sure that a lot of people see uh, or they think that I'm doing this from some kind of a, uh, you know, an office with a booth and stuff like that and with other uh, control folks that are helping. And uh, I do have my co-host with a huge help, but uh, other than that, it's just me. And I've got uh, <laughs> I've got a stack of notes in my book here from uh, from my kids who uh, who I've told not to bother me, but they are not to come in and yell anyway. Well, they still bring me notes all the time. Uh, uh, Daddy, I have a splinter in my finger. Uh, can you get it out, circled yes or no on this paper, etc.? And uh, uh, I've got a whole stack of those notes. I've got one from my daughter just recently. Uh, Daddy, I can't find my favorite pair of jeans. Can you help me find them? You know, I just got to look at them and go, what? 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 Look at me. I'm, on the, I'm, on, I'm doing the radio show. <clears throat> Anyway, uh, so here we are at the uh, at the battles of the three battles, which comprise the battles of Saratoga, and that was uh, Freeman's Farm, Bemis Heights, and then Saratoga. And on the 17th, Hal wrote to Burgoyne, "My intention is for Pennsylvania, where I expect to meet Washington, but if he goes to the northward, contrary to my expectations." and you can keep him at bay, be assured I shall soon be after him to relieve you. The day the letter was written, Howe had already embarked his troops for the Chesapeake, and by the time it reached Burgoyne, Howe's fleet was already south of the Delaware Capes. Although Burgoyne kept his own counsel, he recognized his situation was desperate. Remember I told you guys, he'd already lost uh, St. Ledger's expedition, which is coming from the west. Uh, that had been stopped at Fort Stanley's and the Battle of Ruskiny. <clears throat> Now, he gets a letter from Hal saying, uh, look, I'm heading to Pennsylvania to attack Washington's forces. Now, if Washington uh, heads towards you, if you can uh, you know, hold him by the nose, then I'll be up there with you to help him and grab him, and we'll fight through it. Uh, but I'm sure Burgoyne knew that wasn't going to happen, and Burgoyne knew he was in trouble. He had left his three-prong attack had turned into a one-prong, and he'd already been in a great deal of trouble just controlling his portion of the three-part attack. <clears throat> Feeling that his orders left him no alternative but to push southward to Albany, he determined to cross to the west side of the Hudson River, and there his path was blocked by Gates' army, which held a commanding position at Bemis Heights, where fortifications had been erected and trenches dug under the direction of the Polish engineer Kaczewski. And uh, this was a, a pretty... Uh, you know, a pretty heavy situation here because not only was not only had Gates's force already reached and were commanding the heights there, but they had had a Polish engineer helping them to prepare their defensive uh, uh, situation there. <clears throat> now, uh, Burgoyne paused uh, before he went to battle. He was waiting for reinforcements of guns and food and other stores from Lake George. Uh, once they reached him, he crossed the Hudson to Saratoga on the on September 13th. Burgoyne's thrust south was blocked by Gates' army on the plateau of Venus Heights on September 18th. The British seized 
the heights to the north, and Burgoyne's plan was to get into the rear of the American left by a flanking movement. For this purpose, he sent his right column under Fraser, supported by Brayman's Hessian riflemen and covered by a mixed force of Indians, Loyalists, and Canadians. Now, meanwhile, the British general personally led the center in a frontal attack, supported on his left by the Hessian uh, Baron Frederick von Rietzel and by General Phillips. Uh, the old midwife, this was Burgoyne's name for Gates, uh, was strangely inert, trusting to his fortified positions rather than taking the initiative and splitting up Burgoyne's widely spaced forces. And you'll hear more about Gates later on. Gates was not Gates was not a good commander. He was a he was a good politician, but he was not a good general. And uh, he preferred usually to sit wherever he was than than to take any uh, combat initiative and attack. Now Arnold, on the other hand, he had anticipated the movement to turn the American left and had argued. This is one of where one of the arguments began with Gates, and he finally <clears throat> persuaded Gates to. Uh, uh, to dispatch Morgan's riflemen and Dearborn's light infantry to uh, to move out and check the attack on the flanks there. <clears throat> there, the battle ebbed and flowed until sundown, while Arnold fell upon the enemy center with a view of separating Burgoyne and Frazier. From one point of view, Freeman's Farm was a drawn battle. Uh, neither side gained ground. The Americans suffered some 300 casualties, and the British doubled at no- Stand by, folks. Looks like Scott's been cut off again. This is a prime time if somebody wants to call in and uh, take the mic. We'd be happy to have you. So just come on in and uh, give us the word. Tell us what you uh, think about what's going on with the battles of Saratoga. What do you think of Tim Murphy? Or you can tell us about what's going on uh, in your local area Put out a pat on the back to some of the people you have there. So just uh, dial on in, and I'll put you right on the line. The number is 347-308-8790. So come on down. I can't believe that one of you people doesn't want to call in and get a little free air time here. We've only got 14 and a half minutes left. It's a prime opportunity for you, so come on in. Ed Heller, if you got a question, you just pop on in and ask. We'd love to have you call in, instructor or not. <coughs> and I want to see. Are we back here, Scout? We are back. I, I thought that I had... Uh... I thought that I had outfoxed the the power situation, but apparently I hadn't. So, uh, once again, I apologize for the interruptions, but uh, please know that I'm I am out in the middle of nowhere uh, at the mercy of the the electrical company. All right, so I believe that when, when I lost the signal, uh, I was talking to you guys about 
the Freeman's Farm, uh, like I said, that's where the uh, where we had already spoken about earlier, where the, the battle was a drawn battle, right? Neither, neither nobody gained ground, but the uh, but the Americans left the field, leaving the British uh, in possession of the field. So it was a tactical. I mean, a uh, uh, it was a victory for the British. Now, the, like I said, the Americans suffered about 300 casualties, and the British about 600. But the Americans could be reinforced, uh, and they could, whether they liked it, I mean, they could be reinforced. And uh, and so the the 300 casualties was not a, uh, a game-ending event. However, Burgoyne's forces could not be reinforced. Now, for him, time was running out. His his retreat, if he had wanted to retreat, uh, was virtually cut off by the Patriot forces in his rear. And the early winter in the North Country would have made uh, withdrawal really extremely hazardous under any conditions. All right. Uh, Freeman's farm set off a furious quarrel between Arnold and Gates, and we know that. And uh, <clears throat> let's see. On... Uh, on... August 20th, 
to remedy that inconvenience, but to no effect. Such an explosion of fire I never had any idea of before, and the heavy artillery joining in concert like great peals of thunder, assisted by the echoes of the woods, almost deafened us with the noise. To an unconcerned spectator, it must have had the most awful and glorious appearance. The different battalions moving to relieve each other, some being pressed and almost broke by their superior numbers, the crash of cannon and musketry never ceased till darkness parted us when they retired to their camp, leaving us masters of the field. But it was a dear-bought victory, if I can give it that name, as we lost many brave men. The 62nd had scarce ten men to a company left, and other regiments suffered as much. And no very great advantage, honor accepted, was gained by the day. As I told you guys, they... Lost a huge number of men, and, and to no advantage. Yes, they kept the field, which left them theoretically with the honor of it, but they had also lost 600 men. On its turning dusk, we were near firing on a body of our Germans, mistaking their dark clothing for that of the enemy. General Burgoyne was everywhere and did everything that could be expected from a brave officer, and Brigadier General Frazier gained great honor by exposing himself to every danger. During the night, we remained in our ranks, and then we heard the groans of our wounded and dying at a small distance, yet could not assist them till morning, not knowing the position of the enemy, and expecting the action would be renewed at daybreak. Sleep was a stranger to us, but we were all in good spirits and ready to obey with cheerfulness any orders the general might issue before morning dawned. Now, this brings up one of the points that I've mentioned to you guys before. You know, you watch a a movie, you watch a war movie, and uh, and even though it's a huge battle with, uh, and it could be anything, it could be from any period of history, swords, uh, bullets, bombs, anything, and you think that uh, you you see the battle going, and you see. Uh, the men being shot, and they're all falling and dying, every one of them. And you look at the battlefield at the end of the battle, and it's just, uh, you know, tens, hundreds, thousands of men all laying out there dead, nobody moving, and it's completely quiet. And there has never been a battle like that in history, all right? Because for every for every man killed in battle, you have uh, you have five to ten wounded in battle. And the battles, the battlefields at the uh, night at the end of the battle uh, can uh, are usually a scene of great horror, with the the moaning and crying and wailing of thousands of wounded men laying uh, uh, laying in the in the field of battle, or trying to crawl or walk back to their lines. It's absolute horror, and the the depictions of it uh, on movies or televisions very rarely ever ever reflect it. Uh, if you would like a good description of, of what a battlefield appears like, you can read the Red Badge of Courage. <clears throat> All right. Uh, let's read about uh, of Arnold, uh, Benedict Arnold, this day. Uh, Recollections of Captain E. Wakefield of the American Army. 
A persistent effort has been made from the day of the battle to rob Arnold of the glory, being attached to Dearborn's light infantry, which had a conspicuous part in the battles of the 19th of September and the 7th of October. I had the opportunity of witnessing the principal movements of both and therefore speak from personal knowledge. I shall never forget the opening scene of the first day's conflict. The riflemen and light infantry were ordered to clear the woods of the Indians. Arnold rode up and with his sword pointing to the enemy emerging from the woods into an opening partially cleared, covered with stumps and fallen timber, addressing Morgan, he said, Colonel Morgan, you and I have seen too many redskins to be deceived by that garb of paint and feathers. They are asses and lionskins, Canadians and Tories. Let your riflemen cure them of their borrowed plumes. And so they did. For in less than 15 minutes, the wagon boy with his Virginia rifleman, that's one of the nicknames of Morgan the Wagon Boy, with his Virginia rifleman, sent the painted devils with a howl back to the British lines. Morgan was in his glory, catching the inspiration of Arnold as he thrilled his men when he hurled them against the enemy. He astonished the English and Germans with the deadly fire of his rifles. Nothing could exceed the bravery of Arnold on this day he seemed the very genius of war, infuriated by the conflict and maddened by Gates' refusal to send reinforcements, which he repeatedly called for. And knowing he was meeting the brunt of the battle, he seemed inspired with the fury of a demon. This is written by uh, Captain E. Wakefield. All right. Uh, all right, this is... The letter from General Arnold to General Gates. And this is sent on the 22nd. Remember, he and Arnold and Gates have been in a blood feud. When I joined the Army at uh, Venchek's Island, the first instant you were pleased to order me to London's ferry to take command of Generals Poor and Learned Brigades and Colonel Morgan's Battalion of Riflemen and Light Infantry. Your command was immediately obeyed. I repeatedly since received your orders respecting those corps as belonging to my division which has often been mentioned in general orders, and the gentlemen commanding those corps have understood themselves as in my division. On the 9th, you desired me to annex the New York and Connecticut militia to such brigades as I thought proper in my division, which I accordingly did, and ordered the New York militia to join General Poor's brigade and the Connecticut militia to General Learned's. The next day, I was surprised to observe in general orders the New York militia annexed to General Glover's brigade, which placed me and the ridiculous light uh, of presuming to give orders I had no right to do and having them publicly contradicted, which I mentioned you, to you as I thought it a mistake of the Deputy Adjutant General. You then observed the mistake your own and that it should be mentioned as such in the ensuing orders, which never has been done. All right. Uh I'm going to, well, we're just about out of time here. Uh, let's uh, let's end this. I, I've given you basically all of the 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 information about this Saratoga, and you know that <clears throat> because of this, once the news had reached France, the French went into negotiations with uh, the Americans and. Then they entered the war. 
Once they entered the war, it became a global conflict, an actual world war. And that caused the uh, the British to have to uh, to split their forces up to defend the their the British holdings all over the world, and left the the actual battle in the Americas. Uh, and and as we know, it uh, it resulted in uh, after eight years in our our victory. All right, guys. Uh, we want to thank you, and we'll uh, see you this next Thursday at uh, 7 p.m. Central. And uh, I'd like to thank uh, my uh, co-host for uh, for jumping in you know, when the power is out. And I once again I apologize for that. I'm uh, I'm working actually on on getting a new setup for a radio station. We talked to some folks at the Self Reliance Expo in Dallas. And they've uh, they have actually invited me to to join their group, so we may do that. And uh, I'll let you know it's it along. All right. Uh, once again, uh, we thank everybody uh, who listened in tonight, and we'll see you this next Thursday, 7 p.m. Central. Thank you all. God bless you all, and uh, and good night. <laughs>
national defense match and who is uh, heading up uh, one of the new NRA projects is uh, going to be our guest this next Thursday. All right, so uh, you guys, I'll put this all in the uh, uh, the Appleseed Radio notes, form notes. Uh, but be sure and turn tune in uh, Thursday night so that you guys can hear about uh, the NRA and maybe some possible things that are going on with them and maybe with us and about the national defense match. All right? Thank you all. Good night. Good bless.